You are listening to PPC Podcast, brought to you by AdStage. I'm your host, Paul Wicker, and this week I spoke with Scott Brinker. He wrote a book called Hacking Marketing, which was pretty darn awesome. Our entire marketing team is reading it right now and already learning a ton from it. So we talked a lot about how marketing teams are using a lot of the methodologies that engineering teams had used in the past to make themselves more efficient and just do more stuff. We also talked a lot about the future of ad tech and marketing tech and a move towards a platform vision where there's not so many darn tools that you have to learn and figure out and there's a few more standards that you can kind of uh, count on so things don't seem so disparate. And lastly, we got into the latest headlines from ad tech like we always do. So we record this podcast every Tuesday, 10 a.m. Pacific time out of our AdStage headquarters. You could always find these podcasts on iTunes or SoundCloud. And if you want to get the newsletter, go to blog.adstage.io. All right. Enjoy. Eighty-eight days on Blab. This is not new to you. Well, you know, I know eighty-eight days. I feel like an old man. Yeah, you know the inside story on Blab. I'm not probably not supposed to say this, but is that they are in maintenance mode and they are going to kind of shut it down. Oh, bummer. I know. Agile, right? And well, I, it's funny. You know, I wrote a book, Hacking Marketing, a lot about agile methodologies, and we'll get into that uh, shortly, but. Um, the company that made Blab is called Monkey Inferno, who was a bunch of people that uh, worked at a company called Bebo, which I, I don't know if you remember Bebo. They were yep. a, a social network, got bought by uh, Yahoo, I believe. Anyway, they made a bunch of money and the, the founders started this Monkey Inferno kind of lab environment and then just built all kinds of products. And this was one of them that I think a bunch of engineers got together and it turned out to be one of their biggest products. So. If it's true, I'm sad to hear if they're going the other direction, but it's a very good example of what, exactly what you said, that lean startup approach to building product. Yeah. Now, if you can only figure out how to make money at it, it's... Uh... Yeah. <laughs> That's step two. You know, in Silicon Valley, we don't worry about that. You know? <laughs> I know. Problem. I'm uh, tipping my hand that I, uh, <laughs> I live in the other part of the world. <laughs> right. Uh, well, it's funny. I remember when Facebook IPO'd and... Um, we were a partner of theirs. And until then, they were in the Silicon Valley mindset of like, we're sure we'll figure it out at some point. And obviously, everybody else was like, you know, uh, there's a bunch of kids. They don't know what they're doing. You know, they don't care about making money. And then all of a sudden, they, they went public. They hired a few key hires. And next thing you know, they were um, rolling out a lot of improvements. Of course, now they're number two behind Google. So yeah. clearly, that works. If you have the users, I guess eventually you can hire the right people to figure it out. Yep. Sadly, uh, what do they call that? It's their survivorship bias. Uh, you know, out of all the various companies that tried to do that, uh, Facebook is the winner. <laughs> good for them. Right. Well, that's good. <laughs> there are a lot of off. dead bodies along the way. <laughs> it's my beef with all these marketing books that you see that do, the, you know, the kind of good to great uh, Jim Collins book, which, you know, profiled like, I don't remember how many, 15 companies and uh, if you look back, half of those companies are bankrupt or, you know, had horrible lawsuits against them. Turned out like they went from good to great to not so good again. Uh, <laughs> and it was a perfect case of that survivorship bias where you pick a bunch of successful companies and then try to paint a story of, you know, commonality. Um, innovation is a recognition that new, no two companies are the same, uh, mm. which is another way of making that same point. Like, you can't just look at a bunch of winning companies and say like, oh, you know, Facebook did this. Therefore, if I do this, I'll be successful. 
Yeah, I was just watching uh, TV the other night, uh, catching up on uh, some of my overdue shows. And uh, yeah, somehow I ended up on a channel where they had an advertorial, you know, assuring me of the foolproof system for how to make money in real estate flipping houses. Like, wow, it's kind of impressive that they're still running those ads here in 2016. (laughs) I thought we debunked that (laughs) in a previous global crisis. But um, uh, yeah, Yeah. sadly, there is no formula to. uh, health, wealth, and happiness. There is um, there's an, a book, uh, Fooled by Randomness. That's yeah, another popular it. one that went around. Yeah. So after reading that, professional in statistics, and I will never be fooled uh, by bias again. <laughs> this is your first time book or your first Yeah, as a, as a real published book, I'd say. Well, the other ones you wrote for uh, friends and family and left yeah, around? Yeah, you know, something like that. Well, yeah, I've, uh, you know, I've self-published some stuff uh, previously and, uh, um, you know, I mean, these days on the web, everybody's a publisher uh, of some kind. Well, but you have, I mean, this is a real hardcover yeah. book with a lot of pages in it. So it feels like, uh, <laughs> it seems like a real press, Wiley Press. I don't know. Yes, yes. No, no they're real. Uh, okay. So. <laughs> uh, so how, what was the experience like? How did you decide to sit down and actually uh, write uh, a legit book from cover to cover? Yeah, you know, I'd had the idea for this book for a long time. Um, uh, and so Wiley had approached me about they wanted a book uh, on agile marketing. And to me, I, I tried to convince them that, you know, agile marketing is fascinating and we can talk a bit about that. But to me, it's one example of this broader phenomenon that as you see marketing and software getting more and more entangled, um, yeah, there's an incredible opportunity for marketing managers to borrow and adapt a lot of these ideas that first emerged in software development management or IT management. Um, but uh, so that, that, that was the concept for it. As far as actually writing it, um, I made words every week on a blog and I just extrapolated. I said, OK, well, you know, book is 50, 60,000 words. I write, you know, so this should be a piece of cake. And right. uh, yeah, that was absolutely the wrong way to calculate that. So. <laughs> so, so how long was it to actually get the book done then? Um, it was about an eight or nine month process. Um, and so why did that not transition? Well, I think one of the things is, I mean, you can go off on a different topic and you don't need to connect it back uh, to the previous one. So for me, it's a very, uh, blogging is something that just is a natural flow. Um, But yeah, when you're trying to write a book where you're putting together a story that's going to be cohesive over 60,000 words, it's, it's architecting pieces. So they really fit together. Um, I'm not sure if I actually succeeded at that, but (laughs) that was what I realized uh, as I got into it was made it much more challenging than just blogging. I would say you did you did a very good job. Our entire marketing team is in the process of reading it. I'm on the product team. So a lot of this stuff is stuff that I've been doing for a while because I've been product and engineering for a decade now. So reading through it, I was like, oh, this feels a lot like a very practical, well-written introduction to agile methodology or lean startup. Or what I think the term I learned from you early on in the book was uh, Kanban plus Scrum. Oh, Scrum Ban. Scrum Ban, <laughs> yeah. So effectively, I'm like, oh, that's what we're doing. We're using Scrum Ban, which I think most people I know in the Bay Area are using that as well. Trello boards, uh, Scrum Ban. Uh, and not doing enough retros. That's like the thing that when I read it too, I was like, yeah, that's the part we keep skipping. So yeah, so for what it's worth, we're all reading it and we find it very useful. So anyone listening in who's on a marketing team that doesn't know a lot about agile methodology, it's very approachable. Uh, and even if you already know agile 
and maybe you're moving into one of these technologist roles on the marketing team and you're an engineer uh, or you've just never really read like for me i've never really sat down and read a book about process around agile um, it's not exactly you know happen. one of those sort of like hot novels of the season <laughs> <laughs> right shades like of gray and then hacking marketing <laughs> yeah exactly but uh, so it's very approachable. And it's, it's a good read. Um, so you started to say you you had the idea for this book in your head for a while because you saw these trends happening in marketing. So maybe talk a little bit about you know what was the seed, what was the idea that you had, and what made you kind of uh, think of oh, this is something that people need to know about. Yeah, I mean, so I, I'd say over the past ten years, I've really uh, been following this uh, invasion. Uh, of software and technology into the marketing department. Um, and it's been interesting to watch that evolution because it, it started with, hey, marketers are now using a lot of software, which actually historically was not the case. Uh, there was Excel, PowerPoint, yeah. that, was, that was, you know, Adobe, uh, you know, Creative Suite. That was the, the, the marketing stack. Yeah. Um, but, you know. If you knew scripts in Excel, you were like at the head of the... <laughs> Absolutely. <laughs> you know, but over the past 10 years, I mean, it's just been an explosion of, of technologies, and uh, uh, you know, I mean, we could go through the whole list of everything from you know CMS stuff and how that's evolved to the social, you know, content marketing, marketing automation, analytics, and so on and so on. So that that was one thing. But then I also was recognizing that even the way marketers were engaging with a lot of internet services, you know, I mean, starting with search engine optimization, you know, for Google, um, you know, but increasingly thinking about how they architect engagement with social media, you know, marketing start to see that basically they were beholden to all these software dynamics that every time Google would change their algorithm, you know, there'd be this mad rush in the uh, search engine optimization world to figure out, okay, well, how do we react to that? How do we update that? How do we maintain our website? Um, and then the third step for it, which I, uh, you know, credit Isaac Wyatt, who's the uh, director of marketing operations at New Relic, um, you know, for this great analogy he shared at uh, one of the MarTech conferences, where he did a side-by-side -side comparison of configuring a marketing automation campaign in Marketo and writing some pseudocode, you know, programmer speak, you know, for the, the exact same algorithm and that these were equivalent. And that for me, the, the the light bulb went off over my head of like, okay, wow, all right, it's not just that marketers are using a lot of software. It's not that just that marketers are beholden to the dynamics of a lot of other software creators, but in a very real sense with you know websites and mobile apps and all this marketing automation stuff and programmatic, marketers have become a kind of software developer themselves. They don't just didn't really think of it that way. Um, but if they're now kind of in that world, um, my idea for the book was, all right, well, uh, what would be a crash course in software management concepts that a non-technical marketer might find useful? And it's it's funny how, so since we're a technology company and we're, we're small, we're like 30 people in you know one floor in San Francisco, we work really closely together and we were only half a floor not too long ago. So like literally it was like marketing, engineering, you know, two sides of the room. So I think it came second nature that we'd start to kind of adapt some of these things that we used. Um, so for us, just a quick story. So we relaunched our website in January and it really wasn't just redoing a website, but it was kind of transitioning feature or something that used to be very kind of like stuck in half in engineering and half in marketing, right? Where they wanted changes to the website. And that meant somebody on the engineering team needed to do a bunch of 
work or they needed more tracking set up, which meant that somebody on the engineering team needs to do some work. And obviously we're a software company and we make our money on our platform. So every time there's an engineer not working on the products we put out, it's painful as the product person. Um, so we kind of had this transition back in January when we launched this website to say, let's use a tech stack that marketing kind of knows and loves. It's something based around WordPress and really do their own engineering which is yeah, really different. And we even put an engineer over on that team, someone who was a full-time engineer and fully resourced to that team to really you know, let them even change the product, part of this like whole growth team phenomenon that's happening a lot here, yep. which we should talk about too. Um, but yeah, we've, we've seen it just in the past year really shift where a marketing team is kind of now expected to like, oh, you want to implement a new tool, even though it's super complex and may need you to actually like write some code. Yeah, go do it, test it, see if it works. Do it in a way that you're not going to break everything. And if you do break everything, just make sure we could roll it back. But it's really empowering as well because it's not, I have an idea to use this tool and can does everybody approve? And now somebody's got to go set it up who doesn't understand why I want it. And now it's, it's very kind of uh, self-sufficient. So I think it's a great change for the industry. Yeah, no, I think um, yeah, it is amazing to me. Some of the companies I've heard, I, I, I really like you've done. I've even seen companies, uh, you know, very large, multi-billion-dollar companies now start to figure out how to do that at scale of how to find that balance of, on one level, standardizing on a set of tools, you know, for like core data, um, you know, that there's some common inf infrastructure they want to take advantage of, but at the same time supporting, enabling this idea of much more creative experimentation uh, within different business units or product groups or regions and saying, okay, this is, these are the rules of engagement for, you know, governance for this and, you know, what you can do and what you can't do, but giving people actually a fair amount of freedom with the what you can do to really let marketers go out there and very quickly, um, yeah, try out new technologies. And again, it works best when it's on the focus of, how do we achieve marketing objectives? You know, it's not, hey, this is a shiny object. We just want to stare at it, uh, you know, hypnotically. But uh, yeah, I mean, I want to try X. Uh, there's a tool I think that will help me do it. Can I just go ahead, uh, get a trial, go ahead. Uh, Figure it out. Do. Yeah. Yeah, that whole, uh, that, that culture of um, just do it, right? Yeah. If there's a problem to be get solved. Get stuff done or something like that. Yeah, there's some problems to be solved. I think that's different. That's an intercom thing. But uh, there is this mentality of like, you know, we weren't doing MPS scores, you know, so we just went out and like got some tool that did them and set it up. And it wasn't great, but it did the job. And then we had some data and we had some reference points to decide whether we wanted to spend more time formalizing our MPS surveys or whether this kind of hacky thing that was hooked in intercom was good enough, which it turned out it was. So we got, you know, something done in two hours rather than have like five meetings about what is MPS and, you know, sell everybody on using it. Um, but I do want to ask you a question. You recently interviewed uh, CMT at Xerox. Yes. Uh, and I am curious to, to know these bigger companies where historically it was the opposite, right? Like marketing should not touch anything uh, that is not approved by IT. And if you do, someone will come and install some, you know, password protected. Remember you used to have to get like a password so you can actually install stuff on your computer. That's like, the golden years of IT. <laughs> right. When they like literally, <laughs> I would always get demos ahead of time you need to get the Wi-Fi security password for the guest, and then you would need to get them to like send anything that needs to be installed so the IT team can come, you know, bless it and then install it. I mean, so we went from that to now, you know, if people read your 
your uh, article, which I think we shared on this week in ad tech about Xerox, they'll realize they're approaching it very differently. But do you think that's common? Do you see all these big companies moving in the direction of kind of opening it up? I think it's a very slow process. Uh, I think you're, you're absolutely right. For most large companies, um, this is a very, it's, it's, it's a cultural shift uh, as much as a, um, you know, sort of process or organizational structure one. But even the process and the organizational structure in a lot of companies is still not very well set up for this. You know, I mean, the reason companies are doing it is they have to. It becomes a matter of competitive pressure. Uh, and eventually those forces either went out or the company uh, goes away. Um, but, you know, one of the reasons why it's a struggle is, you know, we started out earlier, uh, you know, just joking about, you know, the, the secret formula for, you know, health, wealth, and happiness. Um, the thing is, the IT concerns around uh, standardization, availability, security, regulation compliance, I mean, these are all very real concerns. And the problem is they are, to some sense, it's, it's like a Pareto curve. It is, is opposed to this sort of Wild West, let's just go try stuff and experiment stuff and build stuff consequences be damned. Um, and so what the, the challenge is, like, if you skew to either extreme, you're in real trouble. Like, if you don't experiment enough, if you don't move fast enough, uh, you get killed competitively. Uh, but the flip side is also true. I mean, not a month goes by that we don't hear of, you know, some massive data breach can be absolutely destructive, uh, you know, to an organization and its customers. And so the, this challenge of finding the right way to balance risk in infrastructure uh, with risk in the competitive market. I don't think there's a magic bullet for it, uh, approach to how they manage this stuff. Even if they recognize they have to change it, the process of agreeing on how to do that change is um, slow, tough. And um, I'll plug your article a little bit uh, with the Xerox interview, because that's a great example of how a, a mega company who's been around for, I don't know, over a hundred years, it down somewhere to like three categories mainstream uh satellite and independent and the rough split was like seven kind of applications or, or seven things fit into this mainstream offerings 20 or satellite uh sorry this is the amount of investment they give 70 mm percent -hmm. in mainstream 20 percent in satellite and only 10 percent in kind of independent which are these third-party wild westy type things but as a result uh, they said the kind of number of apps they're using or number of solutions are basically the opposite numbers where there's a very large number of these independent kind of third-party software tools they're using and very few kind of total in-house. You have to use this no matter where you are in the world. But uh, I think they did a good job of at least recognizing the issue, giving some methodology for their internal stakeholders to figure out like, can I use this thing? And they even built a portal, I think, where they yeah. could like, See stuff. I'm yeah, no, and I think uh, so. Dwayne Schultz is the chief marketing technologist there, and uh, yeah, I mean, he gets all the credit for that. I think this is, in theory, one of the reasons why these senior chief marketing technologist type roles can be so valuable when they're done right. Um, you know, and the titles vary all over the map. Um, you know, it might not be called the chief marketing technologist, but for having that role, it's by having one person who really does appreciate both sides of that Pareto trade-off. What's important you know, for standardization, what's important for infrastructure, maintainability and security, 
but also recognizing that, yeah, the, this ability to change and adapt and innovate um, in marketing, uh, you know, in the technology, in, in a digital environment, right, is just crucial for the to stay alive. That's just a really hard trade-off. And so if you can get one person who can try and balance those two trade-offs um, and then have the organizational wherewithal to put a structure in place that, that, that implements that, um, that's phenomenal. Because otherwise, in the absence of that role, it's just very easy for you to have the two sides kind of, you know, at uh, loggerheads. Um, you know, it's like, I see a black blue dress. I see a gold white dress. You know, and, so, <laughs> and I think if you've ever worked with that IT mindset, the folks who are just, um, I mean, as, a, as someone not in IT, you always wanted the Wild West, right? I mean, why not? I don't care about security. I mean, sure, I, do, you know, I have some concept of it. But at the end of the day, I'm always going to push the envelope for trying new things. And the IT org, you know, usually is the counterweight. And if you've ever worked with a CTO that's like that, I mean, it's pretty infuriating. That's just as a no person to every single thing. So, yeah, to find someone... Um, that really understands the balance and creates a, a, a methodology for that is great. Um, let's, oh, there was one question I wanted to ask you before we talk about Agile more specifically. Um, so in the book, you talk about, uh, you know, there's the Agile Manifesto, which historically was used for the engineering teams. And then a group of folks got together and wrote kind of the marketing version of it. And I wasn't clear whether, were you around in San Francisco when that all went down? Oh, sadly, no. No, I uh, gave them some thoughts uh, remotely, but um, I like to uh, think yeah, you were be there for you it, were at the head of the table, and you were the one that blessed. <laughs> no, I mean, and actually, one of the great things about it is, um, you know, that movement uh, was so organic. Um, you know, in fact, uh, I forget how many people were there. I want to say it was around sixty or so. Um, but the truth was even not represented at that table were dozens and dozens of other marketers who had been pioneering that for years, you know, um, uh, you know, like uh, Mike Volpe at HubSpot, right? Uh, he was one of the people who like really helped uh, in the early years usher this concept from engineering into marketing and was also willing to talk about it. I mean, that was part of the HubSpot model was, you know, share marketing insights and wisdom. But um, yeah, I mean, that was, uh, uh, one of those first cases where people were like, oh, wow, that's interesting. That's new. That's cool. So, um, yeah, really credit goes to it, it was such a community thing uh, from so many different facets of the marketing world. Awesome. Very exciting. And this is totally off topic, but if you hear it, there's some plane apparently circling our building or something. So we hear a jet flying overhead. I don't know. Or you tell me right. when it's circling your building. That's right. I will I be concerned. Usually they just fly over. It sounds like uh, Fleet Week. We have Fleet Week here in San Francisco, where like the Blue Angels fly out of the city, and it sounds like the buildings are going to explode. They are so incredibly loud. Um, it's got a little of that. So apologies if it sounds like I'm, you know, reporting from somewhere in Afghanistan. But, um, <laughs> so let's talk about Agile a bit. So for folks who have no clue what Agile is. Um, do you have kind of the elevator pitch for how you can use Agile in your marketing organization? Sure. So the, the elevator pitch would be um, the traditional way things like engineering projects um, or marketing plans were built were these, you know, very long term plans like the yearly marketing plan. And then they were executed by being broken down into very functional silos. 
Uh, the agile approach is almost the antithesis of that. It's to say, okay, well, we might have a high level strategy for what we're going to do for the year, um, but the actual plan itself is much more emergent. It's done in these iterations, uh, you know, these two, three, four week sprints. Um, and generally, instead of trying to break groups into highly isolated silos of, okay, you're the web team, you're the search team, you're the ad team, um, that uh, instead we sort of look at executing marketing more based on customer oriented activities like, you know, top of funnel uh, growth or, um, you know, uh, loyalty uh, conversion within, uh, you know, our customer base. And that these teams that focus on those customer oriented missions are cross-functional. So you might have someone from the website, you might have someone from uh, the social side, you might have someone from advertising. Um, they might be supported by a marketing technologist or a marketing operations person. And um, for the folks who are kind of in the historical marketing view, right, they're just in a department doing creative. Um, have you, like, how do you get from that to trying to bring this process into your organization? So the, the most common way this uh, gets piloted inside marketing organizations is to, again, pick, pick a particular customer mission, um, you know, it might be something for the launch of a particular product, or it might be something, um, the development of a new community, uh, you know, within the customer base, something that is inherently cross-functional, usually something that's being done in a digital environment. So you have that opportunity to, you know, build a little piece, get some feedback, iterate it, build the next version. Uh, and so what you generally see is, you know, an organization will put together an agile team, almost like a little tiger team to go off and do that project. And if that's successful and if that works, then from there, people start to, the light bulb starts to go off and say, hey, well, maybe we could use this agile approach for this other aspect of what we're doing in marketing or this other team over here. Um, do you have any clue where the term tiger team comes from? Oh God, yeah, it was from, uh, wow, man, that was back in the 90s or something. It must've been like an HBR article, but yeah, there you know, it was one of these ways of like reorganizing, like again, actually in many ways, one of the precursors of you know the agile movement uh, of instead of having these really siloed, top-down hierarchies saying, hey, for a particular problem, let's just grab the people from the different groups, get them together, and empower them to run with solving it. Um, it didn't have the sort of sprint iteration structure around it, but uh, yeah, Tiger Teams and I think X-Teams was another word yeah. <laughs> 20 years ago that you're using for uh, those cross-functional little SWAT units. And the, um, there's certainly a number of books either out or uh, recently published, too, about um, kind of this concept of deadlines. So there's a lot of things that, about Agile that work, and you talk about a lot of them in the book. Um, you know, the, the concept of putting things out so therefore you can get feedback earlier. I think a lot of people now in this landing page testing world we live in, where if you're in marketing right now, you're probably familiar with the concept that you don't build one website or one landing page. You build something, you see the feedback, you know, you're testing a few different options, you're changing it. Uh, and that's a really good, I think, example of this methodology. You're trying to build something really quick and with some variation that you can get feedback on. Um, one thing that kind of challenges me on the engineering side, and I'm sure on the marketing side as well, is we always you can get data back in some sufficient quantity that you can learn something from it. But very often, especially for startups who don't have a lot of customers, or haven't yet really rolled out a lot of product, 
you know, it can be really hard to get feedback. So do you have any uh, kind of guidance you give folks when they talk about kind of using this methodology? Should they, should they hold off or what's the way to approach it? Yeah, well, you know, um, we go to market with the data we have, not the data we want. Um, so yeah, I mean, if, if, uh, if, if you have access to a, a large degree of real-time quantitative data that you can use as your sort of uh, guidance system, uh, you know, and feedback, that's, that's awesome. That's the holy grail. Uh, but you're right, a lot of companies don't have that either because it's, you know, still early uh, for the company or, again, even in larger companies, um, you have to decide what your proxies are, right? Like, um, you know, if I'm if I'm Xerox, right? You know, and I'm selling solutions that are, you know, these multi-million dollar solutions in some cases that the sales cycle, you know, is a year, right? I mean, you know, it's very hard for me to do things on a two-week sprint and say, okay, and here's how I now track that to, you know, increase sales or, you know, increase lifetime value. Uh, so you end up being forced into this mode of having to look at, you know, proxies of, okay, well, this increased website traffic or this increased, you know, social engagement. Um, you know, we got a larger open rate to emails. But you're already now going in a direction where like, okay, you're getting a quantified piece of data, but there's not a guarantee that that quantified piece of data correlates to the ultimate business outcome uh, that you want. So there's always a little bit of that, you know, human intuition process. Uh, that you that you have to bring to bear, and I think you have to constantly question it. Um, so I would say in the context of yeah, working with you know an agile team that you're the, the feedback you can get in a particular sprint is somewhat limited um, to still look at the value of the feedback available to you. Like for instance, um, in engineering teams, early stage engineering teams, you have the same problem too, right? Like if you're building out the product before you're actually able to release it to the world, because in most products, we don't have the benefit of one sprint and we've got something out the door. I wish that was the case, um, right? Uh, but, you know, we can do a sprint and we can get feedback from stakeholders, uh, from, you know, whether it's product owners, you know, who have sort of externally gone out, tried to synthesize the needs of the market, and they're now taking a look and evaluating, um, okay, based on what you're showing me, here's what uh, here's what I like and why. Uh, in later cases, you hopefully get some of your early adopter customers, whether they're beta customers or whatnot, and you might be able to share it with them and get their feedback. And again, so all these, these things, I mean, in marketing, you know, it, it, it might be the, um, you know, feedback from what individual customers actually say or individual prospects actually say. And I think that's helpful. It just, you, you take it with a grain of salt. Mm -hmm. you, you, you don't treat that as um, uh, infallible uh, data. It's just better than no data. And I, uh, so we had Ben from Intercom. He runs the growth team at Intercom and he came in the office here at AdStage. And, you know, he said, so a lot of what he does is pricing stuff. How do we price properly? How do we you know, break up the product? Um, and there's just, you know, Intercom is fortunate. They do have a lot of people buying kind of every day, but there's still not enough to get statistically significant data back on every small change you want to make. And he made the point, you know, a lot of it does turn out to be gut, but if you can feel the product and use it and play with it, it's sometimes super obvious if you made a bad choice. You just, you know, the second you click something or, I mean, I think marketers, we've been doing this for a long time too. I mean, you, you have an idea for a blog post, or you have an idea for a copy or an ad, and then you put it together and it looks bad, or it's just like, well, this isn't interesting at all. 
And, you know, if you're the traditional kind, if you used kind of traditional methodology, you would have like, you know, planned it, wrote an outline, wrote out the post, got it edited, and then sent it for someone to review. And then they read it and be like, well, this isn't that good. But now you sunk, you know, I don't have much time into it. And now there's this, I don't want to give up on it versus more of the agile methodology. If you break it up into small chunks and you just, you write the outline, you share the outline and say, you know, here, read this. And if someone goes, oh, this has no legs, um, then you save yourself all this work and you, in, in design, we call it rapid prototyping, you know, just put a bunch of boxes down on a page and share that rather than spend a week coming up with something beautiful that just misses the mark. But so I think to your point, there's a lot of value in, in even if it's not kind of a full data set, uh, what you have, as long as you take it again with a grain of salt. Yeah. Yeah. That whole notion of being open to feedback and being open to the idea that, um, there's some experimentation in progress. Um, it's it's not that complicated of a concept, but I mean, culturally, it is very different than how marketing had traditionally been managed. I mean, there, there were pockets, right? Like, you know, the direct mail uh, world from, you know, 30 years ago or whatnot, right? They, the database marketers, there were some very early pioneers that said, hey, wow, we could do this do a good job by experimentation here. But for the vast majority of marketing, it wasn't about experiment. It was let's decide what to do and then let's just execute it all the way to the end at scale. Um, and so making that cultural shift to say, okay, no, let's, let's take this a little bit more bite-sized chunks and realize that even if the feedback isn't a perfect data set, um, to even just be open to feedback and really taking that critical eye and, and treating it as something that, you know, we can change this, we can improve this as we go along. Um, incredibly powerful mindset. Uh, but there's still an emotional reaction when you work on something for a long time and someone says, no, this is wrong. We're going to go a different direction. If you've spent six weeks, you're going to, you know, it's going to be a lot harder to deal with that feedback than if you spent, you know, six hours on it and then it gets thrown away. So just the human psychology of working with much shorter kind of deliverables and, and really lowering the bar of quality um, where you're saying it's OK if this isn't perfect. This is about iteration number X, you know, and just seeing like uh, is this in the right direction, which is but it's just hard to do, I think, on a human level. We hate rejection. <laughs> as, as people. Yes. Yeah. Uh, well, you know, behavioral economics is <laughs> uh, very different than, you know, the quantified economics there. But um, it's it's who we are. Um, so excellent. Well, I, I want to talk about some of the kind of broader MarTech stuff that's happening, too. But is there anything else kind of in relation to the agile concepts that uh, if I'm a marketer, like I absolutely need to know, or maybe, you know, what's the one or two things they could start doing today to start kind of working in a more agile way? Again, I think the, the idea for agile is most companies um, start by finding a particular mission or a particular project that really lends itself to that iterative, um, you know, digitally empowered approach with a cross-functional team. Uh, I have yet to come across a marketing department that can't identify <laughs> at least one thing in their scope uh, that would be a really good fit for that. Um, so I think starting with that is, I mean, it, it's, it's one of these things that, again, you can you can write down the, uh, the process of Agile, you can write down the principles of it, and it's you know, I don't know how I expanded it to half a book. Um, it's just not that much, right? It, it, it's relatively straightforward. It is entirely in the cultural adoption and execution of this. And so the only way you get agile is by doing agile. Well, that's great advice. Um, 
You could also read your book as another step. It wasn't supposed to be a well, setup. Okay. <laughs> yeah, and if you buy two copies, actually, you'll maybe learn it twice as fast. That's true. Well, the progress with uh, double the purchase. And um, <laughs> I don't think I ever actually said the title of the book. Uh, maybe I did. So it's Hacking Marketing. And this is Scott Brinker who we're talking to today, which I don't know if I ever said either, who you um, you post quite a bit under, well, Twitter handle Chief Martech. And then uh, you have your own blog, which uh, remind me or tell people what the, the blog is. So um, uh, it's the Chief Marketing Technologist blog, uh, Chief Martech, uh, without the H at the end, just to um, make things challenging, uh, uh, chiefmartech.com. All right. So I wanted to get that in uh, while, while we're still on the agile topic, because now I want to get a little philosophical about the future of this technology world we're living in. and. You know, you talk about the concepts of APIs in the book and how, you know, as marketers now we know about, you know, uh, coding the APIs and whatnot. But um, maybe to get into the topic, I'll ask you to talk a little bit about that, you know, Loomiscape slide with like a million logos on it. You know, is this a sustainable world we're living in in terms of MarTech technology? And where do you see it moving over the next, you know, one to two years? Yeah, wow. Those are, (laughs) we could do like a whole um, session just on that. I think... Um, it is a world in flux, uh, and I think it's very hard to predict the exact shape it will take over the next five years, largely because um, there's a, a number of different paths that are viable. Um, I guess I, what I will say is two challenges there. One is um, not so much challenges, just two, two realities. One is not all marketing technology companies are equal. Uh, you know, and so that landscape, in a very real sense, um, hides uh, the differences between them. Uh, for them, a, a logo is a logo, and it's pretty much all the same size. Uh, but in reality, right? I mean, you've got companies, uh, you know, like uh, Oracle and Adobe and Salesforce and HubSpot and Marketo that are these very large um, entities, and so they have a outsized impact. Uh, you know, on that landscape. And then on the other end of the equation, right, I mean, you've got a whole bunch of, you know, very small companies, some because they're startups who aspire to grow into something very large. And in some cases, it's small companies that um, they're they're perfectly good for what they are is a small niche. Like one that always comes to mind for me is uh, a Moz, uh, you know, from like the search engine optimization world. I mean, Moz is a small company. They always have been, uh, but they're one of the most respected, you know, companies in search engine optimization. It's a very, uh, for what they do, they do it incredibly well. Um, And I think it's one of the things that this software world of, uh, you know, infrastructure as a service and open source and collaboration around the world has has allowed very small software companies to actually build powerful uh, products or powerful services. Um, So it's entirely possible, you know, even if you see a world that has consolidated large MarTech players, there could still be a very large landscape of uh, niche and more specialist uh, MarTech uh, providers on top of that. So that's one thing. Uh, the other thing, though, is, and I struggle with this every time I put that landscape together, is where do you draw the boundaries on what is marketing? Um, because as marketing becomes so entwined with 
product and customer experience in a digital world. And, you know, we're now, yeah, entwined in sales. We're entwined in customer service. We're entwined in the actual product development, you know, um, this whole growth hacking movement, right? I mean, people argue whether it's a marketing role or not a marketing role, but you step back and basically what's saying is, hey, the best way we can achieve marketing outcomes is by crafting the product in a way to really achieve those marketing objectives. Part of what makes the landscape grow is uh, the scope of what we could potentially see as being related to the marketing mission uh, seems to just keep growing as well. And, you know, I always picture these marketers uh, seeing, doing their kind of day-to-day job and just getting bombarded with all these growth hacking right now or analytics and just there's a million tools out there. There's like a million things you could be doing. And to me, it feels overwhelming. I would think, especially at a bigger company where I have kind of some strict guidelines like at, at Xerox about kind of the things I can go play around with. Just I'm sick of the sales pitch, right? So like I'm not even going to go look. And some like Moz is naturally because everyone's using Moz and he's been going at it now for I don't know, 20 years or something like that. But there's so many great technologies that I feel like people just aren't going to find because it's just too noisy out there to find them. I mean, do you think that's valid or do you feel like the, the good ones would rise up anyway? Uh, both. Um, you know, I think it's a really competitive landscape. Um, the, the flip side is, right, I mean, the market is huge. Um, you know, we are seeing this evolution, like it or not, from what was a massive amount of money allocated in marketing to media uh, to now a steady shift in this direction of um, different ways of finding and engaging our audiences and looking at marketing as a more, more holistic customer experience, customer journey process that isn't just about getting that, you know, top of the funnel. It's so you, you look across, I mean, it's so, so yeah, you've got this, you know, incredibly competitive landscape, uh, but at the same time, you've got this, you know, incredibly vast opportunity. Uh, and so trying to triangulate the trade-offs of, you know, exactly how many will be sustained in there. Yeah. Um, it, it's hard for me to predict a specific number. Yeah, well, I'm trying to get some free consulting out of, out of you, I guess, um, because I have this this vision, but I, there's a way I can see it going in the future. So um, you have all these, you know, technology companies, startups, tools that are really kind of useful. Historically, folks, like you mentioned, Adobe, Salesforce, Oracle, you know, they'll buy, buy them up and, and turn them into in-house solutions kind of mush them into the cloud and have, you know, the Oracle marketing cloud. And you kind of, if you want to use the products, you know, you they only kind of work best if you use them all together. And generally what happens, uh, and maybe this is just my, my view, is uh, a lot of times those products get really diluted. The team starts there, starts to get a little, you know, I was working at a startup, now I'm working at Oracle. Uh, maybe take their foot off the gas a little bit. And generally speaking, so I've been in the search engine marketing world forever, and I've seen you know a double-click acquisition and uh, a few other acquisitions. And those platforms just seem to kind of, double-click has made a resurgence, but they kind of just turn into non-competitors. Um, and it seems like the independent ones, Kenshu and Marin, really kind of own market share. And even when Google was giving away double-click for free, people were still kind of paying Kenshu and Marin a million dollars a year to go use their product. Um, so there's that model where like the big one, big companies come along and kind of gobble up these tools that are really useful. Um, but is there room for more of like the Apple world or, you know, where these independent apps continue to exist, but in some type of unified platform that makes it easier to access them and use them? 
Yeah, to me, that that's always been the holy grail. Um, and uh, it's actually very frustrating to me because I feel um, companies like Adobe and Oracle and Salesforce had the potential to really push a platform play. Um, and although all of them have, you know, some degree of ecosystem and some degree of APIs, generally in their marketing and sales models, they have favored, hey, we really just want to sell our stuff in our big suite, you know, and yeah, yeah, there's some other players out there, but you know, don't pay any attention to that. Uh, just buy everything from us. Uh, and so sadly, they, they you know, they, they it never got enough traction. Um, and so now you've got this kind of weird world where it's a bunch of pseudo platforms. It's not like it's come down to, okay, well, we have iOS and we have Android. Right. You know, as long as you build for both of those, you know, you're set. Well, the interesting thing is if that evolves, uh, you know, and one of the theses um, that I have is, well, I think it might be very difficult for a large commercial player to now set the platform standard. Because, uh, you know, like once the genie's out of the bottle, uh, I think it's very hard for, you know, Adobe to corral everyone in and say, okay, we are now the standard backbone that you will build everything to. Uh, they, they may try, uh, but I think that they've, they've got their work cut out for them. But what could be really interesting is the possibility of an open source movement for, you know, this infrastructure layer, almost some people call it like the marketing OS. Um, it's actually kind of fascinating for all the software that's exploded in marketing, how little of it is open source. Um, you know, I mean, I guess WordPress is, is you know, they're, they're <laughs> so arguably right there, the largest CMS uh, in the world. So that's been successful. But most of the rest of the MarTech landscape, there are relatively few open source offerings. And those that are there don't have tremendous traction yet. But in theory, if you could see a wave of open source projects in this space get successful, then they might provide enough of an independent foundation that people could say, okay, that becomes the standard. And Oracle and Adobe and Salesforce, they may choose to adopt that standard. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, they still could have commercial solutions there. Um, but if we could get to some standards at that, you know, uh, OS layer, you know, of marketing data and marketing processes, I think that actually would make uh, that, that large landscape incredibly more viable and cohesive. And what's interesting is you have kind of MarTech and AdTech, uh, which are very similar yet different. And at least on the AdTech side of the world, there's these dominant players, you know, Google, Facebook, who in many ways want to resist a common platform because they want everything to flow through Google and Facebook. You know, if you want to do Google ads, Google would prefer if you went through the AdWords interface and did everything you need to do. Uh, and now that Facebook is big enough, they're, they're the same way. And, you know, Twitter and LinkedIn, et cetera. Well, now LinkedIn, Microsoft. Um, so it's interesting being on the ad side of the business. You know, I think what you're saying is exactly right. And where we're waiting for an industry for someone to create that kind of platform that we can all find some common ground, especially paid ads has a different set of problems, but it's the same general concept that, you know, there's a click is five different things on five different networks. And they'll all change definitions at least once a year. So if you're just trying to remember, oh, on Google, you know, this is, if I got a conversion, is it one per click or many per click, or do I have attribution set up? And, you know, it's, it's a full-time job, just kind of, just data, even if you get into the concept of like, what's a campaign? You know, it would be nice if on every network you could set a budget at the campaign level. 
And on every network, you had some second entity, usually called an ad group or ad set, where you can test targeting. And if you want to target very common things, like geographically, wouldn't it be great if you can do that in a common way and just it happens everywhere. So yeah. anyway, so obviously that's where our heads are at at ad stage. We're trying to build that kind of platform for the paid side. But I had never thought, I always think Apple, uh, you know, Apple and Salesforce. Apple kind of obviously has done that where, you know, anybody can come along and build an app on their platform. Salesforce in some ways has done that as well. Um, but it still kind of lives in a very Salesforce-y kind of way. <laughs> and you have to- Yeah, and I think Salesforce yeah. is interesting too because their core CRM, I think is a terrific example of a platform, you know, the SFA, the original Salesforce. Um, I think one of the reasons they were so successful was because they ran a platform play um, uh, I mean, a textbook fashion. The challenge is some of the other properties that they acquired, you know, for like social media marketing, Radiant Six, or Exact Target and Pardot. For you know, I mean, they 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 fit more of the other model. That okay, yes, we have some APIs, yes, we have some ecosystem, but in, the main show is buy our product, buy everything from us. Um, uh, and I, I think that's why they they've been slow to have that same sort of adoption on the marketing cloud ecosystem compared to what they had with the CRM side. And it's, I mean, I'm sure, well, I can tell you, it's very hard to stay committed to an API slash platform strategy because, you know, you make money on your own products at a much higher rate than you're going to make money on a third party built on your platform, unless you're Apple, right? Unless you could say, I'm getting 80% of the revenue, you know, or something outrageous. Um, so when you're a product guy and you're trying to pick projects, you're like, oh, well, okay. I can build another feature for the social platform that needs it, or I can spend more time on the underlying services, which is going to take longer. You know, the, nobody understands how that's going to provide business value. Um, and I got, you know, expectations I need to meet. So I could see how it, it's hard for a big player to really take that strategy unless they're super committed to it. Yeah, but I think, you know, again, if, if you look at Apple, and it's interesting, right? Apple, you could say as an example on both sides, uh, you know, uh, historically very closed from a, you know, hardware perspective and whatnot. But I think it's safe to say that one of the reasons the uh, iOS platform succeeded the way it did was because of that openness, the fact that, yeah, I mean, you have millions of apps and granted, probably 95% of them, you know, just uh, come and go and there's, there's nothing you care about. But still, if you said there's 5% of the apps out there, I mean, you're still talking tens of thousands you know, of uh, incredibly useful apps or incredibly useful market. You know, just in, as one interesting alternative to this, because the, the, the platform vision is the one I, I have a soft spot for in my heart. Um, but the reality is marketers have lived in a world where they've had thousands of different providers to choose from um, historically with no common, very few common standards among them. And that's the way in which uh, marketing worked with the agency world. I remember uh, talking to the folks at the four A's, you know, even just a couple years ago, and they had a database of something like 10,000, uh, you know, marketing agencies just here in the US. And you're like, you could almost say, okay, well, how does a marketer choose from 10,000 possible choices? Uh, well, somehow they, they, they did. And there were large ones and there were small ones and there were specialist ones. And yet, you know, I mean, that landscape. Uh, I do think there is some vague historical precedent where you can say a market can be incredibly diverse and still be successful. Most people would have thought the agency model up until very recently was, right, like just uh, an institution of marketing as we know it. 
And that's part of what I find interesting too, is as the power of agencies seems to be waning and the power of marketing technology vendors seems to be rising, you wonder if that's part of where, right? Like, uh, you know, we're sucking some of the mojo uh, out of the agency side of things and uh, adapting it somehow into the MarTech landscape. Well, for sure. I mean, we've definitely seen this consumerization of enterprise software turn things that used to be very inaccessible to your average marketer into something very easy to use. I mean, to use Apple again, I mean, take a bunch of stuff Microsoft already has and then just make it much more usable. Uh, get rid of all the options and the menus and the help text and the manuals and just simplify the experience. And suddenly, you know, uh, people love a touchscreen phone. Um, and I think that's that's happened in certainly MarTech and, and ad tech where, you know, setting up tagging on your website used to be pretty inaccessible. And then Google Tag Manager came along, which is still actually pretty hard to use, but a lot easier than it used to be, for sure. Um, and things, you know, things along those lines were now... Uh, I think in enterprise software, we used to, you know, the UI team was, you know, drop downs and text fields was like, you know, who cares what it looks like? It's for other engineers to use where, uh, you know, Apple turned that on its head. So I think, but to your point now, yeah, you don't need the agency who has some specialist that understands how to do tag management. Now you could probably figure it out if you just go to some super interactive tutorial on their website and go through their product tour and all that fun stuff. Yeah, well, this is part of the um, challenge that, yeah, for you in Silicon Valley, but even for me, uh, you know, in in, in marketing technology, um, is there's this distribution curve in, in the marketing world of people who understand this stuff and are saying, yeah, yeah, I can get the tag management thing. It's now easy enough. I can figure it out. Um, and I still think, right, that is the very uh, the, the the top ten percent, you know, uh, of the marketing world that gets that, that understands it, that's comfortable with. Maybe the top quartile would, you know, vaguely depending on your market. But for the vast majority of marketers, yeah, I mean, you know, what do you mean tag management? What? You know, even figuring out what the hell a tag manager is versus how I would ever select one and implement one and use one. Um, there's a huge set of people out there for whom that is just total foreign realm still. Yeah, I do. I mean, I live in the bubble for sure. I mean, uh, I'm with you in that regard. I live right. there too. But uh, every now and again, I I slip out of the bubble and I get frightened. I'm like, oh my god, we are really far behind. Well, it's uh, I started my career selling ads to small businesses, and that's you know a great example of I think something's common knowledge, and then you walk into a, a plumber's office, try to talk to him about a website, and this was a while ago. So especially around the time Google was first coming onto the scene as a replacement for yellow pages, you know, the number one question wasn't about, you know, budgets or keywords or match types. It was about, you know, do people really use Google to find businesses? Um, and I would just think like, what, how, how do you not understand Google? You just type something in a box and the results show up, but. Ironically, now we're back. We, we've come full circle, and you know, with uh, conversational interfaces and all this stuff, everyone's like, "Wait, you use Google to find a business? How ancient? How quaint?" <laughs> That's true. Um, well, so let's. Uh, we don't have a ton of time left. We're about seven minutes. So I do want to talk about some headlines, but this has been super fascinating. So it's been hard for me to to stop talking about the platform stuff because it, obviously it's a big part of what AdSage uh, is trying to do. So it's like I can't not go down that path. <laughs> I'm uh, with you. I, I love it. But all right, headlines. All right. So um, 
we start talking about conversational UI. The other thing you can't seem to stop hearing about is VR. So uh, VR everything, VR ads, um, Yahoo announced a new Yahoo title ad format. So, you know, really trying to find some ways to get more traffic flowing through Yahoo Gemini. Uh, this tile ad now supports 360 degree uh, images and video. So you can, you know, kind of look at your phone and move around. Uh, Facebook's doing it. YouTube does it now where you can, uh, for me, I actually just discovered it. You can uh, see a video and then actually move your phone and kind of look around. I think they did it for one of the NASCAR races recently. Um, have, have you had your first VR moment yet? <laughs> yeah, a little bit, but <laughs> I haven't yet uh, found myself um, yeah, turning to it as, oh, this is, I really, I really wish I had VR for this. Uh, you know, but even what? some of the stuff, uh, you know, like uh, the Google Cardboard stuff, like with the Times, I mean, so it, it is, I mean, you clearly see this is going to be a really, uh, a whole new level of engagement for people. It's really sexy. The question always for marketers is, do we take our old practices and try and just adapt them in this new environment? Or are there ways in this new environment of just qualitatively different approaches to how we uh, find and engage our audience? Yeah, that is a, a fantastic point. And I, I mean, so I put on Google Cardboard today, actually, for the first time. And I was blown away at the immersiveness of the format. And clearly, you can see whoever figures out the first kind of few really applicable uses for VR is going to make a ton of money. Uh, and obviously, there's like media, movies, TVs, uh, music, uh, video, uh, which, you know, the ad networks are starting to get in on. But yeah, finding the first agency that specializes in like VR video will have a line out the door, I think. So tip yeah. anyone out there. Right now, we just have VR, VR. Um, we're imagining. <laughs> it's virtually virtual reality. Um, well, it, it sits on top of, VR sits on top of video, which has also been in the news a bunch. So one of the articles um, basically talks about how video continues to go bonkers. Uh, IAB study from uh, earlier in the year found that 72% of advertisers are going to increase the video spend this year. Um, and of that, 41% are planning to pull that budget out of television, which is not surprising. So I think it's finally happening where, you know, like magazines, newspapers, print have been in the past kind of two decades. Uh, we've been talking about television declining for, I don't know, five years. So now it feels like it's about time that we'll start seeing it, it shift, but it will be slow. I think Rupert Murdoch, uh, maybe I'm misattributing this quote, but uh, someone like Rupert Murdoch said, um, you know, mediums don't die, they evolve and evolution takes time. I think we'll see TV go away, but it's, you know, like 20 years. People still have phone books. So they'll have TV for a while. Yeah. <laughs> this is one of these things you can debate it from so many different angles because uh, it's kind of like, uh, you know, the challenge with marketing technology of saying, okay, well, it depends on what you define marketing technology to be. I think, uh, you know, TV is in that mode where this this shift, um, you know, from what used to be primarily broadcast to primarily cable, from, you know, what now used to be from, you know, predominantly, um, you know, you showed up at a particular time for a particular show, now on demand, and now, you know, the evolution with, uh, you know, things like Netflix and Amazon, where actually they've even just disconnected themselves from, you know, a particular bundle of uh, channels per se. It's like every single one of those shifts is enormous. And, you know, I mean, at some level, I still come home and I watch, you know, Orange is the New Black on my TV. So we could say I'm watching 
TV and it's evolved, but it certainly isn't, you know, uh, what CBS was broadcasting at 8.30 p.m. Right. Yeah, I guess it's, um, I think, broad, when I say TV, I think broadcast TV. Uh, I think last week we talked about a study that showed like where video, just generic video, could be on a television, could be on YouTube, spending was going. And the top three results were like YouTube, Netflix, and Hulu, and then you had CBS. Um, so definitely a shift in where that video spend is going. But to your point, it's very gray on when, when TV stops and when online video starts. Um, I will say the, so Facebook, I think maybe about a year ago now, they really kind of said, we are investing in video and, and focused on it. A few quick stats, um, I'll give you one stat. So video ads on Facebook accounted for 22% of total ad spend uh, this month. So almost a quarter of their revenue now is coming from video ads, which is incredible. Video, anything else video? I think that's all I got on video. Um, quick stop at Snapchat. Are you a Snapchat user? <laughs> <laughs> no, I played around with it a bit. Um, in fact, actually, I just had a frightening experience this morning where uh, my uh, seven-year-old daughter came over and was showing me Snapchat. <laughs> She's like, hey, Dad, give me your phone. Let me show you something. <laughs> I'm like, oh, God, no. <laughs> I'm installed. In um, actually, uh, a few weeks ago, I, I some there's more Snapchat. So Snapchat is now has more users than Pinterest or um I want to say Instagram, but that doesn't sound right. Definitely Pinterest, maybe another social network. I think it was Instagram. And people are kind of like, really? Snapchat? Uh, if you look at the 13 to 18 demographic, like the, the super young, they use Snapchat a ton because it's got a lot of like uh, filters. You know, you take a photo or video and it puts a like a live filter on the video, uh, which kids really like. So you're, yeah. you're not alone. It's not, I think as adults, we think it's like, for nudies and all these uh, things that kids shouldn't see. But kids these days, you know, they seem to be using it legitimately for, you know, kid-like stuff. So let's hope that's... No, I'm, I'm sure it is. But I think, uh, you know, it, it, my reaction to it is, uh, it's so easy for me with, you know, like that MarTech landscape to, you know, uh, become somewhat immune at a distance to say, yes, there's all these new innovations and they're constantly coming at you and, you know, just deal with it. That's the new world. Um, but even for myself as a, as, as a blogger, right, which should, should not be a particularly, uh, you know, heavy um, uh, exercise in figuring out, you know, marketing channels, you know, marketing programs. Even I'm like so behind on like the list of things like, yep, yeah, I got to figure out what I should do if I'm going to use this channel. If I'm not going to use it, how am I going to use it? You know, I was just happy figuring out, you know, I've been using Blab a bit for a, a, a chief MarTech TV event. You know, <laughs> you were saying, well, Blab might be going away and there'll be something else. I'm like, oh, that's not making me happy. <laughs> right. Another thing to learn, another audience to build. Well, how about we just all agree? We'll, right. we'll just stop now. No more new technology for the next year. Let's just take take a hiatus. I was going to say 10 years, but yeah, I think uh, the one year hiatus. Stop with what we have, enjoy it. Uh, yeah, well, not going to happen. All right. Snapchat was recently valued at $18 billion. So I think they are a, um, looking to be like they're going to be around for quite a bit as one of the, the next big social networks. And I do, so I, I don't really use it. My girlfriend, who used to, I think when I downloaded it, she's like, why do you have Snapchat? I was like, you know, work. I got to look up this stuff. I got to know what's going on. And then she installed it. And now like every 10 minutes, I get another like Snapchat video from her. <laughs> so I feel like it's, it's like Instagram was 
maybe a year ago when suddenly all everyone's friends and parents were popping up on on Instagram that now seems to be what's happening to Snapchat. It's going, it's going. Which is why now something else will have to come along and replace it. You know, I mean, that's very true. Once once the parents arrive, you know, the kids have to have to go. Um, That's very true. Uh, So I, I'm interested to see what they do with the ads business because I'm an ads guy. But um, right now their only ad products are these like super expensive, uh, like sponsored filters. So you can pay somewhere around like a quarter million dollars to get one of the like filters sponsored by your company. Uh, one of the stories in this week in ad tech was about Taco Bell. Um, didn't say how much they paid, but you know, they ran this campaign on Cinco de Mayo where you can like turn your head into a taco or something like that. Yes, I remember that. <laughs> and it got uh, insanely high um, adoption. The CMO even admitted, you know, we can't really measure what we got from it. It's very early in terms of their ad product, but, um, but they're finding a way to make money, even though it's kind of the old fashioned of like just a big chunk of money from big brands for some vague exposure type stuff. But they have the demographic that all the brands want, which are, you know, uh, younger and, and super engaged. So I think they're going to demand those premiums for a while. More power to them. Right. Um, all right. Well, I don't want to keep you on the show forever. It must come to an end. But I really enjoyed talking to you about the uh, the API stuff and, and really getting into these concepts of agile methodology and bring it over to the marketing teams. I think in a few years from now, this will be kind of how like people do everything, how you run product, how you run marketing, how you run projects. It's almost just a project management philosophy. So I had a lot of fun. I hope you did too. Yeah, no, thanks for having me, Paul. It's a really great chat. And if you need to find Scott, you can find him Chief Martech on Twitter, on Blab for the foreseeable future. Um, or you can check out his blog and learn more. Or check out the book, Hacking Marketing, and uh, give it to all the marketers. All right, take care, Scott. All right, thanks, Paul.